I want to make an introduction before we go any further. Uh, Try to introduce him last Sunday, and he wasn't in the room, but Corbin Taylor Souter is here for the very first time with David and Jennifer and big sister Avery and brothers Michael and Tanner. We're really glad that he's here. Glad mom and baby and whole family's doing well. What a, what a blessing to have children. The passage we read is not exactly David's finest hour, was it? Here you have the great king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, who's making some pretty poor choices, doing some pretty sordid stuff. He starts out by not going with the army to the battle that they've got to fight. Now, I don't know if that was wrong or not, but it certainly started the dominoes falling that wound up having him in a, in a horrible place. And then he's uh, on his roof or on his balcony or whatever, and he sees this incredibly beautiful woman. Must have been amazingly attractive in a very revealing situation as she's bathing there on the rooftop. I remember years ago, I was, Cindy and I were dating. I was just a teenager, and I was talking to her grandmother and, about this, and I said, look, if she was up on the roof bathing in full, full view of the palace, I think maybe she was the one that was trying to get this started. And Cindy's grandmother said, well, David had a neck, didn't he? I mean, he could have turned the other way, but he didn't. In fact, to the contrary, he sends somebody to go check out this person. And nothing good is ever going to come from something like that, and it didn't with David in his case. Now, he summons her to come to the palace. And, I, you know, I'm not sure who was seducing who in this story as it started out, but I know that in those days when the king summoned you, you didn't say no if you valued your health. So she goes to the palace. They spend the night together. And then the next morning, he sends her home and they think everything's okay until a few weeks later, I don't know how long it was, when she finds out and sends him word that she's going to have his child. Well, David has done some pretty stupid things here, but he's not a stupid person and he knows this isn't going to fly with the people, with the nation of Israel. So he proceeds to enact a a 10th century B.C. version of a good old-fashioned government cover-up. And and the first thing he does is trying to do it just a little bit. He sends for Uriah to come back from the front, front lines, and he chit-chats about not much, and then he sends him home hoping he'll sleep with his wife, but he doesn't. He tries again, this time with some alcohol, and he still doesn't do it. So David realizes about the only thing that he can do is just get rid of Uriah, eliminate him. And he concocts a plan that works very well. Uriah is killed in battle. And after the suitable time of mourning, he has Bathsheba come to the palace. They're married, and he has her as his wife. And he thinks, you know, that ought to take care of it. Nobody will be the wiser. Uriah was the only one who would have really known 
No sense airing your dirty laundry in front of the whole nation. We might as well just keep quiet about it, right? Just let things settle down a little bit, going about our business as usual. And that's what David decided to do. Seemed like the obvious choice. After all, with her husband out of the way, there was no no evidence of anything. People might suspect something, but there's no really proof. Give it time, and it'll all blow over, or so David thought. But things didn't exactly work out the way he was hoping they would. Listen to how he describes what happened within him as he tried to just live with what he had done. It was part of the scripture we read earlier, Psalm 32, beginning verse 3. When I refused to confess my sin, David says, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. David spent almost a year, maybe even longer, because the child has already been born, trying to just live with the guilt of what he had done. But he found out the hard way, that doesn't work very well. We just aren't meant to live under the burden of sin and the guilt of unconfessed wrong. Sooner or later, it's going to get to us. Sometimes we hear about somebody who has, uh, has surgery and there's something inadvertently left inside when they close up the incision. Maybe it's a sponge, maybe it's a glove. It can even be a scalpel. And somebody lives with that. They, they, they walk around with that inside them for a period of time. Can you imagine walking around with something like that inside you? Well, sometimes there's something worse than having something stuck inside your body that's not supposed to be there. What if we could take an MRI of your heart not your physical heart, your spiritual heart, your mind, and see what's there, maybe stuffed down into the corners of your consciousness that you just want to forget about. We find some regret over things that you shouldn't have said. Maybe you realize something you said or did with someone hurt them so much it's impacted your relationship with them ever since. Maybe it was something long time ago, back in college or even high school, back in when you lived in another city or were at a different job. And there was something that you did that you knew better, you shouldn't have done. And it's still there somewhere. Maybe it's shame over a, a marriage that didn't last. Or maybe it's this, this feeling of guilt over the parent that, you always wanted to be. You knew you should have been. But you just never seemed to be that parent that you, that you wanted to be. Or maybe it's a habit that you can't seem to shake. Or that, that one temptation that you can never seem to get past. It always grabs you. They're shoved way down into your consciousness, or, or maybe it's been shoved down so long, so deep, it's actually in your subconscious place. 
And, and whenever something happens, whenever something sort of reminds you of that situation or you, that issue is brought up or you get into a, a circumstance that's similar, you really struggle with that. And you, you're not really sure why. You just know certain things trigger some very negative emotions. And, and the people that know you really well, they know it too. They know not to bring up certain issues. They know if you're ever going to have to be in that, that situation, it's going to be very uncomfortable for you and, and probably for people around you. They don't know why. Maybe you don't understand why. Maybe, maybe, it's, been, maybe it's been pushed down and buried so long you don't remember it, but it's still there. Brennan Manning in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, relates the story of his experience when he went to, to do therapy in an alcohol rehab clinic years ago. And he describes being there. The therapist in charge was a guy by the name of Sean Murphy O'Connor. And one afternoon when they gathered together for a group session, there was a couple of dozen of them in the session, it was the, it was the time for Max to kind of open up about his story, his experience, his problem. But Max was a very successful, very wealthy businessman who, who seemed to have a way of just making everything okay. And, and when Max was put on the hot seat and was asked to, to be honest about things, he would dodge this and he would kind of deflect that question. And, and he was playing sort of a game. It was a cat and mouse kind of thing. And, and finally... Murphy O'Connor got a phone, speakerphone, and dialed the, the, his favorite tavern back in his hometown, Max's hometown, talked to the bartender there and asked about him. And the bartender revealed that Max drank an enormous amount of alcohol every day, several times more than he had been willing to admit to the group. And the game was over. The charade was up. But... Instead of acknowledging it, Max just sort of brushed it off once more, saying something like, well, you know, we all kind of slant things to make us look better from time to time. I want you to listen to the rest of that story in Manning's own words from his book. They're in this circle, and Fred says to Max, have you ever been unkind to one of your kids? Max says, glad you brought that up, Fred. I have a fantastic rapport with my four boys. Last Thanksgiving, I took them on a fishing expedition to the Rockies, four days of roughing it in the wilderness, a great time. Two of my sons graduated from Harvard, you know, and Max Jr. is in his third year at... But Fred cut him off. I didn't ask you that. At least once in his life, every father has been unkind to one of his kids. I'm 62 years old, and I can vouch for it. Now, give us one specific example. A long pause ensued. Finally, Max said, Well, I was a little thoughtless with my nine-year-old daughter last Christmas Eve. What happened? Well, I, I really don't remember. I just get this heavy feeling whenever I think about it. Where, where did it happen? What were the circumstances? Wait a minute. Max's voice rose in anger. I told you, I don't remember. I just can't shake this bad feeling, that's all. Unobtrusively, Murphy O'Connor dialed Max's hometown once more. 
and spoke again on the speakerphone, this time with his wife. Sean Murphy O'Connor calling, ma'am. We're in the middle of the group therapy session, and your husband just told us he was unkind to your daughter last Christmas Eve. Can you give me the details, please? Her soft voice filled the room. Yes, I can tell you the whole thing. Seems like it just happened yesterday. Our daughter Debbie wanted a pair of shoes for a Christmas present. And on the afternoon of December 24, my husband drove her downtown, gave her $60, and told her to buy the best pair of shoes in the store. And that's exactly what she did. When she climbed back into the pickup truck her father was driving, she kissed him on the cheek and told him he was the best daddy in the whole world. Max was preening himself like a peacock and decided to celebrate on the way home. He stopped at the Cork and Bottle, that's a tavern a few miles from our house, and told Debbie he would be right out. It was a clear and extremely cold day, about 12 degrees above zero. So Max left the motor running and locked both doors from the outside so no one could get in. It was a little after three in the afternoon, and there was silence. Yes? The sound of heavy breathing came out of the speakerphone. Her voice grew faint, and she was crying. My husband met some old army buddies in the tavern, swept up in the euphoria over the reunion. He lost track of time, purpose, and everything else. He came out of the cork and bottle at midnight. He was drunk. The motor had stopped running and the car windows were frozen shut. Debbie was badly frostbitten on both ears and on her fingers. When we got her to the hospital, the doctors had to operate. They amputated the thumb and forefinger on her right hand and she'll be deaf for the rest of her life. Max appeared to be having a coronary. He struggled to his feet, making jerky, uncoordinated movements. His glasses flew to the right and his pipe to the left. He collapsed on all fours and sobbed hysterically. Murphy O'Connor stood up and said softly to the rest, let's split. 24 recovering alcoholics and addicts climbed the eight-step stairwell. We turned left, gathered along the railing on the upper split level and looked down. And no man will ever forget what he saw that day, the 24th of April at exactly high noon. Max was still in the doggy position on the floor. His sobs had soared to shrieks. Murphy O'Connor approached him, pressed his foot against Max's rib cage and pushed. Max rolled over on his back. You unspeakable slime, Murphy O'Connor roared. There's the door on your right and the window on your left. Take whichever is fastest. Get out of here. I'm not running a rehab for liars. Tough love is based on the conviction that no effective recovery can be initiated until a man admits he's powerless over alcohol and that his life has become unmanageable. The alternative to confronting the truth is always some form of self-destruction. Max's denial had to be identified through merciless interaction with his peers. His self-deception had to be unmasked in its absurdity. Later that same day, Max pleaded for and obtained permission to continue treatment. And he proceeded to undergo the most striking personality change I have ever witnessed. He got honest and became more open, sincere, vulnerable, and affectionate than any man in the group. Tough love had made him real, and the truth had set him free. The truth that sets us free in the Bible is called confession. 
James chapter 5, James tells us, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so God can heal you. When a believing person prays, great things happen. The word James uses, the original language is homo lugao. Homo means the same. Legeo is to speak. When we confess, we're speaking the same as God. We're agreeing with God. We're saying to God, yes, God, you're right. What you've said is true, and what I've been doing is wrong. That's what King David finally did. In Psalm 51, beginning of verse 1, David says, God, be merciful to me because you are loving, because you are always ready to be merciful. Wipe out all my wrongs, wash away all my guilt and make me clean again. I know about my wrongs and I can't forget my sin. You're the only one I've sinned against. I've done what you say is wrong. You are right when you speak and fair when you judge. You see what David's doing? You're right, God, and I've been wrong. That's confession. He's speaking the same as God. He's tried everything else. He's tried covering it up. He's tried pushing it aside. He's tried burying it deep down inside, and it's not going to work. Nothing is going to solve that pain that he has inside because the truth is we're not meant to live with the guilt of sin inside us. He finally decides to come clean and tell God the truth about his sin. Is that what we need to do? What an incredible blessing we pass up when we fail to do that. You know, I've, over the years, I've gotten rather familiar with praying. I do it regularly. Uh, early on, I would hear Paul's admonition to pray without ceasing, and I'd scratch my head and say, how in the world could anybody do that? I mean, you wouldn't get anything else done. But I had a very narrow definition of prayer. had to start with some kind of serious salutation like our Father and, and then flow into some flowery language and always end with, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, that's a good way to pray, okay? It's really good. But I have found over the years that my, my prayer life has become a lot more informal than that. And I'm just constantly throughout the day thanking God for this or, or praising God for that and not infrequently asking for him to help me with something. But you know the part of my prayer life that still really needs some help is the confession part. I just seem to really struggle to to have that same natural attitude of confessing when I'm talking to God as I do of praying or, or praising or thanking or asking. I need some help with that. Pray for me about that, won't you? Because there's something we give up when we're not in a in, in a consistent, continual posture of saying, God, I'm so sorry. I've I blew it again. That was really wrong. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I'm too busy 
trying to find excuses for why I do what I do or trying to rationalize it away or, or trying to find somebody else to blame for when I do wrong. But I, I, I give up so much by not having that also as a part of my prayer life. Prayer is a, a wonderful, wonderful blessing. Imagine, think, remember a time when you, you did something, you said something, and, well, at the very least, it wasn't very gracious. And if we want to be brutally honest about it, it was just downright offensive. I mean, it was just absolutely wrong. You, you, were, you were caught up in the heat and the stress of the moment or something happened and you, you didn't intend to. You care about the person. You didn't want to treat them that way. But, but just under the circumstances, that's what happened. And afterward, when you look back on it and you stop and think about it, you realize, you realize how wrong that was. But they're, they're not there anymore. They're gone. And you remember when you've done something like that, remember how heavy that weighs on you, that anxiety, that, that, that desire to make it right, but you can't because you're not there, they're not there anymore. And whenever you think about it, until you get with them again, until you have an opportunity to go back and address that, whenever you think about it, it just, this, just, this black cloud just kind of settles in your heart. But then you get with them and, and you, you explain what was going on. You, you apologize. You, you, you ask for their forgiveness and you say, I, I, I shouldn't have done that. And, and because they're a wonderful person and a good friend, they just smile and sort of wave it off, say, I, don't worry about it. I, I know you didn't mean it. I know you didn't mean anything by that. It's, it's okay. We're good. And think of how wonderful it feels. When that's gone, and you know that relationship is what it ought to be, because that's what confession does, and God says, I want you to be confessing, because I don't want you to feel like there's this black cloud in between me and you. I want that relationship to be right. Remember, you see, God's grace is continually flowing into our lives like a fountain that's always flowing. Remember the old song we used to sing? There's a fountain free. Tis for you and me from the throne of life. Now it flows. While the waters roll, let the weary soul hear the call that forth freely goes. Is your soul weary from trying to cover up or ignore or just push down? something that you know is there and it's, it's just weighing on you? Are you worn out from trying to cover it up, trying to put a good face on it instead of just being honest with yourself and honest with God? The great physician is prescribing a good dose of confession for that. It's really good for the soul. Maybe your confession isn't just something that happens in the course of as you go along in your daily prayer times. Maybe it's something much more significant than that. You know it's there. It's something that happened a long time ago. It's something that was, was incredibly profound in the impact that it had on your life and still has and on other people. See, David's not the only one to absolutely crash and burn in his relationship with God. 
And if that's happened, maybe what you need to be doing is setting aside some time just to get with you and God. Maybe it's just you and God alone. And you just pour out your heart to him. Just just unburden your soul and receive his sweet forgiveness washing over you. Maybe what you need to be doing is, is more like what David did, what Max did. Where you, 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 you let other people in on it. Whether it's the group that's here at this church or maybe, maybe it's not anything you do today. Maybe it's this week or maybe it's next month. But you get with your small group and you just get honest because you know they love you and they'll support you. Or maybe you, you, you can't even go there. Maybe you just get with one or two of your closest spiritual friends and you say, I got to get real. When we don't do that, it doesn't work well. Remember what David said in Psalm 32, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. I groaned all day long. Look at the difference confession made. Psalm 32, verse 5. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you. I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me all my guilt is gone. Confession is a powerful thing, not not because of the one confessing, but because of the one who hears the confession, the one who receives it and provides release. Brennan shares an epilogue of his story of Max in his book. He says, the night before Max completed treatment, Fred passed by his room. The door was ajar. Max was sitting at his desk reading a novel. Fred knocked and entered. For several moments, Max sat staring at the book. When he looked up, his cheeks were streaked with tears. Fred, he said hoarsely, I just prayed for the first time in my life. Max was on the road to knowing God. Max could not encounter the truth of the living God until he faced his alcoholism. From a biblical perspective, Max was a liar. Max's lie consisted in appearing to be something he wasn't, a social drinker. Truth for him meant acknowledging reality, his alcoholic drinking. The evil one is the great illusionist. He varnishes the truth and encourages dishonesty. He causes us to live in a world of delusion and reality and shadows. And he quotes 1 John 1. If we say we have no sin in us, we're deceiving ourselves and refusing to admit the truth. Appreciate him quoting verse 8 of 1 John 1 because that is the way John describes what Max was doing. But we need to be very careful that we never consider the sobering truth of verse 8 without also looking at the wonderful promise of verse 9. But if we confess our sins, he will forgive our sins because we can trust God to do what's right. He will cleanse us from all the wrongs we have done. That's a promise we must depend on to live in the freedom of God's grace as he intends for us to. Sad reality is that sometimes we get this idea that God has all this incredible, wonderful grace for these sinners. 
But then once we become a child of God, once we commit to living that spiritual life and walking with Jesus Christ, then it's, it's just all up to us, and we have to get it all right all the time. And if we don't, well, that's just too bad. It's one of Satan's most powerful lies, and it keeps a lot of followers of Jesus from knowing the joy of forgiveness continually the way God intends for us to know it. Brothers and sisters, God did not love you enough to send his own son to die on a cross just so he could turn around and get hacked off at you when you mess up. You're his child. Please don't hear me say that God doesn't care about holy living. He does, just like you care about your own children's living well. You don't want them to mess up. You don't want them to go down a bad path. But when they do, you don't get in their face and tell them to get out of here. You never want to see them again because that's your child. That's your son, that's your daughter, that's the person you love with all your heart. And if we can love our children that way, how much more does God love us? Let's pray together.